turn to Judges, chapter 1. Old Testament book, right after Joshua, book of Judges. Now, what we're going to do, um, we rarely do this, but we're going to read a long portions of the Bible this morning. We're going to read entire chapter 1 and first five verses in chapter 2. Now, there will be a lot of names, um, and if I butcher one, please forgive me, um, but it's just not a common names that we normally use. Um, but if we're going to um, just read this, just be uh, careful and open to all the flow. There's a lot of things that are being repeated, but try to understand what the uh, really exist of it uh, in chapter 1 and pay attention to the first five verses in chapter 2. Would you all stand as we receive the word of God? Beginning in chapter 1, verse 1. Here is the word. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them. The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I, likewise, will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. And they found Adonai Bezek at Bezek, and fought against them, and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him, and caught him, and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off, used to pick up scraps under my table, as I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country in the Negev and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba. And they defeated uh, Shisai and Ahiman and Tarmai. From there, they went against the inhabitants of uh, Debur, and the name of Debur was formerly Kiriathsefer. And the Caleb said, "And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriathsefer and captures it, I will give him Exa, my daughter, for a wife." And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it, and he gave him Exa, his daughter, for a wife. When she, she came to him. She urged them to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey. And Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the land of Negev, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Canaanite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev and near Arad. And they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother. They defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath uh, and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory, Ashkelon with its territory, Akron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses has said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak, 
But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them, and the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please, show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. And the men went to the land of Hittites and built the city and called its name Luz. That is its name to this day. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of uh, Beth Shion and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants Ibelim and its villages, or the inhabitants Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not driven out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Jebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalor. So the Canaanites lived among them but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Echo or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Edlab or Exit or of Helba, or of Akpik, or Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beshemeth, or the inhabitants Bethanath. So they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of the Bethshemeth and Bethanath became subject to forced labor for them. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Harris, in Azalon, and in Shalabim, but the land, the, the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of Amorites ran from ascent of Akrabib from Selah, and upward. Now, the angel of the Lord went up against Gilgard to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bokim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Amen. God, this is your word. Pray that you will teach us. Teach us the things that we need to know. Understand your will. God, would you help us? As your servant, um, by your word, by your help, by your spirit, deliver and expound on the word, help your people to see it and understand it. May your will be done. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So, as you can tell, we're in the book of Judges. What do you know about book of Judges? Whether it's a story or a content, anybody? Like, this is what I remember. This is what stands out for me in the book of Judges. Story, figure, Samson, there you go, right? The most famous guy in the book of Judges, Samson. There's Gideon, 
Um, their story, different stories. Now, for several weeks, I mean several weeks, I'm thinking close to maybe 16, 17 weeks. It will take that long for us to go through 21 chapters. Um, we will spend the second half of this year, uh, give or take, a big chunk of our second uh, semester or second half of 2023 in the book of Judges. Now, if you ask me why Judges, well, we've been on New Testament quite some time. And I was a equal opportunity preacher when it comes to the Bible. I want to balance it out. And also, because we studied uh, the book of Joshua a um, year and a half uh, ago, this is the story that follows Joshua and just immediate outcome of it. But what's the real reason for us to study the book of Judges? Well, we need to study book of the Judges because it has so many parallels. It reflects their lives, their time, what they went through, can teach us a lot, and it could help us a lot because we have so many parallels between our world, our time, with the time with the things that went on in the book of Judges. Now, if you heard this saying, this statement, and I want to see uh, how many of you are familiar with this. You might have heard it uh, when I said it too. Your God is whatever that controls you. Whatever controls you is your God. So if the person seeks power, right, then this person will be seeking, thinking, breeding, living for power. Therefore, the person will be controlled by power. If the person seeks money, same thing occurs. That person is going to be controlled by money. The person who seeks acceptance, the person who seeks recognition, from the people in his life, in her life, will be controlled by the very people he or she wants to please or wants to be recognized by. So things we seek, those are the things that control us. Those are gods that controls us. What do you seek? What, what do you seek in your life? What do you get up in the morning for? What are we seeking? What are we doing? Comfort? Money? Companionship? What are we seeking? Because whatever you seek, inevitably that's going to consume you and that will control you. And in the end, that becomes your God. What do you seek? Do you control yourself? We like to believe that. But are you controlled by the very thing that you work after or seek for? Do you have gods in your life that controls you? I said we have many parallels in our time, in our lives, to the people uh, in the book of Judges. We live among many gods. And when I say we, have, we live among many gods, I'm not talking about religious deities, Buddhas or Buddha or Allah. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is this. We have many gods of wealth, gods of fame, pleasure, ideology, achievement, comfort, whatever so on and so forth. We have many gods. We live in a time of spiritual pluralism. And the people of Israel lived in the same condition, similar spiritual condition. The time that we live in now and the time that they lived in, in the book of Judges, 
can be summarized, can be um, just characterized by one single statement and comes uh, in the very book here, in the last chapter, in the last verse of this book, chapter 21, verse 25, where it says, the author summarizes the entire book and it says, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, at that time, the people of God, Israelites, were living intermingled with other inhabitants of the land, other people of the land. And what that also means is that they lived among their gods. And the people of God were faced each and every day, daily, the decision, the choice that they have to make. They have to um, look to God and follow God's command each and every day, or they have the choice of kind of follow the preference of the land, the trend of the people, or just to follow preference of their own heart. That was the dilemma of their lives. And when you look at it, it's no different for us. You either follow, look to God and follow his will, follow his command, or you look to the world and you follow what people do in this world, the trend, and your own heart. Listen to your heart. Do what your heart tells you. It's either or. Our world and their world, separated by thousands of years, yet similar, very identical, if not. Yet this book contains so many stories of how they repeated the cycle, how they repeated fail and then recover and fail again the cycle we're going to see that. This book will tell us how they constantly turn away from knowing God, turn away from uh, loving God, trusting God, obeying God. How constantly they have done that. Because they live by what was right in their eyes. We're no different. This is why we are to study this book. This is why this is so relevant. If you look at it in that perspective, how is this book not relevant to you and I? How can we point at these people as we go? There will be plenty of opportunity. I can't believe you did that, Israelites. But it's talking about us as well. It will be. Now, let's jump right in. Chapter 1, verse 1. It begins with the phrase, after the death of Joshua. It, it, it's loaded. After the death of Joshua, the leader, the servant of God, he died. And up to this point, through the book of Joshua, the Israelites experienced how God worked in and through their lives. They came to know this God, the God who uh, makes promise and keeps his own promises by protecting them, defeating their enemies, giving them blessing and rest, provision, timely manner. And through Joshua, the servant, the leader, through him, they learn that they are to be strong, they are to be courageous, so that they can trust and obey God with unwavering faith. If you remember, if I can uh, correctly, in one sentence or phrase, to summarize what Joshua was, he's not fancy. He didn't do anything like Moses. He's nothing like David, none of the prophets. He did exactly what the Lord tells him to do by 
the letter. That's how who he was. He just simply asked God, he hears it, and he carries them out. He doesn't sway. He doesn't improvise. He doesn't add or subtract. Joshua just hears the command, and he just does it. That's Joshua. Nothing fancy, nothing glorious, nothing interesting about this guy. But that takes gut. That takes courage. That takes faith. And in his dying moment, he told the Israelites, as for me and my family, we will choose the Lord. We are to choose the Lord. Israelites learn from Joshua, their leader. We are to choose the Lord. After the death of Joshua, this Joshua that I explained to you. Now, the mission begins. They have to finish the conquest. Now, they take the first step very well, I believe. The life after their leader, Joshua, here they go in verse 2. In verse 1, they asked, they inquired the Lord what to do in verse 1. Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? They asked the Lord. They came to the Lord. They didn't, uh, they didn't inquire one of their you know, uh, um, wise person, or they didn't get together and vote on it. They came to the Lord and inquired, God, what should we do? In verse 2, the answer, the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his land, his hand. Judah shall go up first. There are eight tribes currently uh, they, who did not receive their portion of the promised land. Eight. Out of eight, who shall go up first? Judah. And then behold, Lord said, I have given the land into his hand. I have spoken. I love that character, if you know what I mean. Mandalorian. I have spoken. Guys, sorry. Now at this point, there are eight tribes on this side of the Jordan River. And God said, out of eight tribes, the tribe of Judah is to first go up against the Canaanites. It's not a surprising matter. The land of Judah, the Judah, the king, uh, the, the tribe that produces the greatest king in David the Messiah, to be born. Judah should go up. But here's an interesting part here. God said, Judah, you should go up. And I've already given this land to you. But what did they do in verse 3? Did they go up? Yes. But they did something before they went up. They went to their brother. Judah went to his brother. It's not literally Judah. The tribe of Judah, men of Judah, went to the men of Simeon. And what are they asking? Hey, let's go together. You come with us when we fight for the portion of our land. We shall do the same when you go to get your portion of the promised land. Let's make a deal. It's logical. It makes them more efficient, effective militarily. Now, you might be thinking, it sounds like there is a problem with this. Because there is. Is God or is your pastor nitpicking here? What's wrong with this? Is something wrong with this? Isn't this prudent, wise, a good thing to do to join forces, strength in number, right? This might have been a great decision militarily. Militarily, yes. Logically, yes. But spiritually, this was disobedient, to say the least. 
Spiritually, this was faithless. This was sin. You know, someone explained to me long ago, we all have sin, fall short of glory of God, and someone explained sin to me this way. Here's a dart. Have you thrown dart? Here's a board. And then if you throw a dart that sometimes lands outside of the board, one of you are the ones that create holes in the wall. And some of you are inevitably made the board or uh, close to the bullseye. What is sin? Anytime you throw a dart that does miss a bullseye, from God's perspective, that is sin. All have fallen short the glory of God. All could not live up to the word, the command of God. Therefore, sinners. They made a decision. What should we do? Lord, what should we do? We're ready. Tell us. Judah, you go up and take on them. I have given this land into your hand. This is already given to you. All right. Simeon, would you like to go with us? This will be a good thing to do. And I will do the same. Now, when you read through the book of Joshua, and when we studied through it, and we saw some highlights in the book of Joshua, When you jog your memory, since when, since when the Israelites won their battles with military tactics or overwhelming number or weaponry? Since when did they win? How did they knock down the walls of Jericho? How did they uh, uh, take on the army that is ten times bigger than them? Since when their power, their victory was the, uh, their power, their number was the sole reason for their victory. Their chance of victory was solely dependent upon one thing and one thing only. And that was their obedience to God. Their obedient trust to their Lord was the, the one and only reason for their victory. Not their tactics, not their number. When they trusted God and obeyed Him, God granted them the victory He already predicted, already planned. But when they didn't trust or obey God, they could not knock down the tiniest, the smallest city. If you remember, in early on in the book of Joshua, after they marched through the Jericho, whole week, The impenetrable walls of Jericho came down. And they were puffed up, and the next in line was Ai. The tiniest, smallest city in their whole conquest they have done in the book of Joshua. They went up, and 8,000 men died. Why? Because they thought to themselves, this is enough, and this is fine. They didn't inquire the Lord, and they just take on it. This is what God said. Judah shall go up first. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. What is Judah looking for here? This is, this is everything Judah needed. Think about it. This is everything Judah needed. If they experience and learn from their leader Joshua, This is all. This is everything the tribe of Judah needed. The word of God, the promise of God. I have given the land to you. No matter how weak, no matter how strong Judah might have been, might have uh, assessed themselves compared to their enemy, that was simply irrelevant. That is not relevant at all. Why? Why? Because the Lord has spoken. 
God says, I have spoken. I have given this land to your hand. The Lord has already given the land into their hands. It was already theirs. The land is theirs even before the battle began. Do you get this? Before they pick up their sword, before they march into the battle, this battle was over. Canaanites had no chance. All they had to do was to trust and obey God and just go. All they had to do, just go and claim the land, which is already theirs. But what we see here is they inquire the Lord, but then after they hear the command, this is where they fail to trust and obey God entirely. Entirely. They did go, but they didn't go by the word as Joshua did. But they didn't go alone, did they? As they were instructed. It was half-hearted faith. It was halfway obedience. They customized God's instruction to their liking. They they made a provision so that this command can be palatable. Do you understand? It's doable now. Oh, now Simeon by our side. It's winnable. They customize. They compromise. Now, God already gave his word. And he is forgiving and gracious. And we see in chapter 1, following this action, he kept, God kept his promise. When Judah attacked along with the Simeonites, the Lord gave the Canaanites and Perizzites into their hand. They had great victory by killing 10,000 men. They were marching through city after city, successfully continuing their con- conquest. If you look at 8 through 11, 7, verse 17 and 18, you will see that. Until verse 19. Look at verse 19. They ran into a problem here. What does it say? In verse 19, the Lord was with Judah. And he took possession of the hill country, but but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. They got Iron Man. Iron Terry. The Lord was with Judah. The Lord was present. And that is why up to this point, they were able to successfully carry out their conquest. But when they reached the plain of the portion of the land that is for them, they recognized these enemies have Iron Terry. And this is how Judah's campaign ends, abruptly. Abruptly. The portion of the land which God has given to them, they didn't receive it entirely. This is how it ends in verse 19. I mean... Does that make sense to you? Verse 19 makes sense to you? Is this not puzzling? Because for me, this does not make sense. Verse 19 does not make sense. The Lord, the Lord who was with Joshua, the Lord who brought them out of Egypt, the Lord who split the flooded Jordan River, the Lord who uh, uh, just demolished the impenetrable uh, uh, walls of Jericho. The Lord who promised and carried out and brought them up to that point. And he gave his word. The entire portion of the land, it was already theirs to begin with. Yet they were unable to drive out the people from this land. What's the explanation? Only because they had iron chariots. 
How can this be? Iron chariot. Does it make sense? I don't think it does. Let me explain. I mean, can the God of Israel defeat iron chariots? Yes? Is, is, is it reluctant? Yes. Is this hard to imagine? Iron chest? I mean, iron chariot? Is God not able? Is God not strong enough to defeat iron chariots? Didn't Pharaoh have a whole lot of chariots? Is God helpless against iron chariot? Is iron chariot some sort of a kryptonite against God? God cannot approach these people with iron chariot? Do you understand what I'm saying here? Do you, do you see this? The tribe of Judah prized possession out of the twelve. Do we understand what is going on here? The Lord was with them. God has spoken. The promise was made. And he was carrying them through. And then they approached these people, happens to have iron chariots, and say, we're done. What was the reason? Why did they stop? What was the real reason that they were unable to drive these people out of the land? Really, iron chariots? Is that the reason? Or is it because of their half-hearted faith in the word, in the promise of God? The way that halfway uh, obedient to God's command. This is what's going on. But these people, up to this point, they did not have all these victories and conquer all these people and cities because the Lord was with them. Up to this point, they were able to get here, defeat all these people, and have all these cities under their belt because they have Simeon next to them. These were winnable battles. These were doable fights. But then, with even with Simeon, they have witnessed these people who are defending their territory with iron chariots. And they said, no. This is not winnable. This is not doable. They didn't come up to this point because they believe and trusted in the Lord's command because he has spoken. You see? He, they didn't get here because they firmly believe what the Lord has said in verse 2. I have given this land to you. In their mind, they measure up against their enemies. That was why they won. That was why they uh, defeated their enemy and came up to this point, not because of their Lord. But now they saw iron chariots. Suddenly their strength, their power, their weaponry does not do not measure up against their enemies. They tried, but they could not. They were unable to do so, so they stopped. They didn't ask God here. They didn't inquire God. God, what do we do? Iron turf. They didn't do this. But they would stop. Because in turn, this was good enough for them. Do you know what? Why risk more lives? Let's not be greedy. This is good enough. Look at, look at it. This wasn't ours to begin with. Look how many cities we have. And look at them right now, these people in the plane. We don't have a single chariot. This is suicide. Why do we do this? We did our best up to this point. We should be happy. We love you, God. So they stopped. They compromised. The Lord has spoken in verse 2. They did not believe what the Lord has said. 
I have this given this land to you. It's already in your hands. Iron turrets or not. Impenetrable walls or not. It is yours, God says, and you go. You go and you will have it. Instead of having faith in the Lord and trusting in his promise that the Lord has already given the land to the Judah, the tribe of Judah, and in faith, pushing them out, overcoming their fear. Instead, their common sense, their so-called logic prevailed. Their faithless decision, in the end, prevailed. They inquired the Lord. They received the command, but they didn't follow. Now, we read through the entire chapter, right? And Judah is not the only one who did this. The rest of the tribes would do the same. All of them fail. None of them will completely obey God's command. They all have allowed the people of the land to live among them. When you allow these people, they, you also allow their gods to live among them. Now, it could have seen as a successful campaign for the Israelites, but it was not a successful campaign from God's perspective. It was not what God commanded his own people to do. Yes, they had their reasons. They had inferior uh, uh, military strength. It was sensible compromise uh, without shedding more innocent blood. It was economic advantage, they, we gain what we needed to, and convenient because we keep these people as forced labor. How many times you saw that? Subjected to them and put them in the forced labor over and over. And that was not what God told them to do, commanded them to do. It was sensible, very sensible compromise. And probably they felt good about their decision. They probably felt good about their accomplishment up to this point. Now, this is where we go, jump on to chapter 2. Because here comes the real assessment. The assessment that really matters. Take a look at verse 1 and 2 in chapter 2. What happens? The angel of the Lord appeared and he said, to all the Israelites. In the end, at the end of the verse 1, here it begins. I brought you up from Egypt. I brought you into the land that I swore to give to your father. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? They made contract. They made covenant with the inhabitants of the land. Hey, we'll leave you alone. But then you work for us now. You work for us now. I'm your master. God said to Israel, I have made covenant with you. And you are my people. Do not break this covenant. I want you to listen and make no dealings with these people in the land. God said to Israel, you have not obeyed me. You did not listen to my voice. What is this you have done? And this is the assessment of their campaign from God's perspective. They have disobeyed God. They thought they did well. This was success. We gained so much. And we gained these people as free labor. 
But God said, you disobey me. I told you, you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you have made a covenant with the people of the land. So you are to break down their altars and therefore you cast out and just wipe out all the idols in this land. But you have failed to do so. That was the purpose of this campaign. Not just the land, but the land they will flourish. That the land they will serve the Lord. God will be their God and they will be the, uh, God's people. To cleanse Canaan from idols, other gods, so that Israelites, the God's people, can and will live faithfully to the Lord. And this was for their blessing, for their benefit. God says, I will no longer drive them out. In verse 3. They will become snares, traps, temptations for you as you live with them, among them. Because they will be distracted. Because they will be tempted as they live amongst these people who worship their idols. There will be thorns, thorns on your side. This is what happens. When you become God's holy people, when you redefine your relationship with God, when you are saved, and when you let these idols in your life, you compromise, you make certain deals with these things in your life, what happens? It becomes snares. becomes the source of temptation. Shakes your faith. And you compromise with God's word. You take your eyes off. And as I said before, as we will see in the book of Judges, the cycle we're on, they're going to be on. And apparently we're also on. Will happen. even though they had not entirely rejected God as their Lord. But what happened? They had not entirely received God, entirely obeyed and trust God as their Lord either. This half-hearted faith, this halfway obedience is what we will continue to see throughout the book of Judges. And we will also understand the cause of this harsh assessment. What have you done? You disobey my voice. Is continue something that we will continue to see in this book. Now I take you chapter 1 verse 19 one more time. Israelites said they were unable to drive them out. They were unable to drive them out. In the first place, they were not supposed to drive them out. It was God to drive them out. They just needed to go. But out of their fear, fear of their lives, they said, God, we cannot do it. God, they've got iron chariots. We can't do this. That's fine. But that's what you, that's when you say, God, you can though. And you still go. But notice in chapter 2, verse 2, God is essentially answering, God, you can't do this. We'll be good. You know, we'll stop right here. And God says, this is not what you could not do. This is what you would not. There's a difference. When we say, I can't, it's I won't. You need to distinguish that. There's a difference between I can't and I won't. Israelites said, I can't. But from God's perspective, that I can't is not I can't. It's I won't. Because God has spoken. 
How did they get here? Because they can? Did they knock the Jericho down by themselves? They crossed the Red Sea Jordan by themselves because they can? They won't. You wouldn't. You wouldn't try. You wouldn't go. You wouldn't trust me. You wouldn't believe in my words. Is Judges relevant? What do you think? (laughs) It is like looking in the mirror. I'm telling you, it is like looking in the mirror. You can't point finger at them because that's what we do. We tell God, I can't. And God says, go, I can't. Trust me, I can't. Are you serious? How am I going to make my living? What am I going to do? I can't. But that I can, when God hears it, I won't. The God who did not spare his one and only son. God who didn't move heaven and earth to save you, to redeem you. For, For that God, that I can't is more like I won't. Clearly there is command. Clearly there are instructions. Clearly what God already proclaimed to you as his promise to you. But as you live your life, there are things that you say, I can't. You know you need to, you should, you should abide by, and you should obey and wholeheartedly follow, but you, you, for no, whatever reason, whether it doesn't make sense to you, you're fearful of it, and you measure yourself and your ability against that, and you said, uh-uh, I can't. When God says go, and God says it's yours. And you're not saying I can't, you say I won't. Because I don't believe you, I don't trust you, I can't obey this. God, where I am, it's just good enough. And God says, why do you do this? What have you done? There are all kinds of things that cause us to be fearful and and come to a decision and say, we're unable. I am unable to do this. But the truth of the matter is we're refusing to, refusing to do, refusing to go. Because we believe God is not strong enough for this. Whatever you're faced with, this is God. You don't measure up to Iron Terrier. You don't measure up to this job. You don't measure up to this conundrum I have. This obstacle I see, God, you are not strong. You're not able. Your word, your promise, even your cross, Your gospel is not enough. You're saying you won't when you say, I can't. Folks, there are so many gods, so many idols, so many lords that controls you because you seek certain things in your life. And these false gods will inevitably stick around in your life if you don't cleanse them, you cast them out, and it will stick around and become snares and thorns and traps for you to take your eyes off from God, no longer hear from Him, and inspired to do and believe and say, I can and I will. These things make you miserable. These things take your joy, suck the joy and peace out of your life and it will enslave you and you will live for them. What do you seek? What is your God who controls you? His word from God, His promise from God enough for you to go? Or do you always have to see with your eyes and you have to measure yourself against what is ahead of you? And you just say, I can, I won't. Or do we do what he says 
in those times, do we remember who God is? Don't just say he is almighty. He is most powerful. Kings of kings, Lord of lords. He is, you are the creator. You are my savior. You are the redeemer. You are God. Don't say that unless you believe. If you believe, hear his word and say, yes, Lord. If he placed that in front of you and he tells you in your time with God, in, in your uh, people around you, prayer, praying for you and say, hey, this is test, overcome. This is temptation. Hey, look to God. What do we say? I can't. Yes, I believe. If he is your God, you need to seek him, live after him, yearn him so that he controls your life and he becomes the one and only God. Don't meet your God halfway. Don't trust your God half-heartedly. Don't do this Christian life with your head, with your eyes. Do it with your and the unfortunate cycle we're going to see in the book of Judges is so, so relevant to all of us. Trust your God completely. Obey your God fully. Walk with your God day in, day out. Let's pray. God, we thank you for our time. Thank you for the lesson. It doesn't make sense when we read. It should have been easy decision for the Israelites. It's head scratching. It's idiotic. It's like they forgot how to walk and start crawling. They forgot everything you have done and act so faithlessly. How? Why? What are they doing? It's something that we recognize. God, I am so guilty of that too. I live my life with my eyes. In the name of plans and being thorough, I trust my logic, my wisdom, my knowledge more than your word. I don't inquire you. And when I inquire and hear from you, I don't follow through. I don't wholeheartedly believe it. Even the world is against us. Our loved one tells us not to. But we go. Because you have said so. That's enough. Yet we treat you like you are not enough. You're not strong enough. You're not powerful enough. You're not present enough. And you can deliver. And we say we can't. But is it really? Oh God, we don't do things. Change our mindset, Lord. It is not who. It's not us who are working. We don't clear the path. We don't make this happen. You do. But when you do, then we just simply, we're, we're vessels. We just go. We just carry that out. We are merely instrument. And you work through us. You empower us. When it is too hard for us to overcome, you rescue us. When we say we can't, because we are faithless, we're weak, because we took our eyes off from you, we no longer believe in the word that we said, Amen. Oh God, as we study through some of these failed examples, it is written there so that we can read 
and understand and learn from. Help us to trust you wholeheartedly, not half-heartedly. Help us to obey you fully and completely, not halfway. In, in a smallest decision to the most difficult, consequential decisions in our lives, may we trust you. May we completely obey you. We will choose you. Choose the Lord. God, would you go with your people? Go before them. Keep them safe. Keep them near to you. Bless them and guide them. And may you truly be the Lord. May we hear from you and live by your word. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.